your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues. This is Dom Watkins, and this week we're going to do something a little bit different. I recently had an essay, Turning the Tables on the Inequality Alarmist, co-written by Yaron Brook, come out. And so I've invited my colleague, Amanda Maxim, at the Ayn Rand Institute to sit down and fire questions at me about the essay, perhaps about the book, and about other issues related to the debate over inequality. So, Amanda, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thanks, Don, and I, I guess welcome to your own program as well. So as Don said, I'm here to, to ask some questions about Don's new essay called Turning the Tables on the Inequality Alarmist, which is uh, co-authored with Yaron Brook. So the Pope is in town, and the Pope is a big advocate or proponent of this idea of uh, inequality being a bad thing. I read a, today an article in, on CNN, uh, and the, the author said this. He said, quote, the Pope is certain to emphasize one of the central themes of his papacy, that the unfettered capitalism practiced in the United States and the West is fostering income inequality and creating an economic culture where the poor are simply discarded, unquote. So first of all, I want to ask you, is this a, a common view that people have, uh, or is the, the Pope and his ideas sort of on the fringe? Well, I think there's something revealing about the Pope's entire attitude. So he also around the same time has visited Cuba, which is one of the poorest countries thanks to the communist dictatorship there. And not only did he not blame and condemn the Cuban dictatorship, but he did not um, – but he continued to, uh, during that time to condemn capitalism. Now, what do you notice about the difference between Cuba and America? Well, in Cuba or in America, even our poorest people are richer than most Cubans. In Cuba, there's actually a maximum wage, uh, $20 for most jobs, 30 if you're a doctor or a lawyer. So, I mean, per person working at McDonald's in America is going to be richer than a person in Cuba. And the wider point is that the only thing that has ever lifted large numbers of people out of poverty that has created prosperity is capitalism. Now, is it true that Cuba is more equal than America? Yes, I think that's also true, although we can come back to a caveat on that. It's true that in America there's more economic inequality, but that reveals what's so wrong about focusing on economic inequality. Inequality has nothing to do with poverty. It does not mean poverty. It refers not to a deprivation but difference. And there's nothing problematic about differences because to the extent a society is free, those differences reflect the fact that people create different amounts of wealth. They, they create different amounts of value and are rewarded in proportion to that as well they should be. And so our goal should not be equality. It should be a country where people can create value. They can create wealth. They can prosper. And some, those who create a tremendous amount of wealth, which, by the way, helps every productive person in an economy, will will uh, be rewarded the most financially. So, but does that mean like the Pope is saying that we're going to discard the poor? That America is going to yeah. discard the poor? 
Well, look, if his goal was really concerned with the poor, then, as I suggested, he would be a champion of capitalism, and he'd be condemning places like Cuba that sentence millions of people to the worst sort of poverty. And so I don't think he does care about the poor. I think his motivation is very clear, is that he hates the capitalist West. He hates the materialism of capitalism. He hates the fact that under capitalism— People are focused on this world, on making the most of their lives in this world, on being productive rather than on renouncing the world, sacrificing. And I think that's exactly what we should be focused on. And so the whole concern about the poor and income inequality and global warming on all the things that he's talking about, the common denominator is it's a way to attack the West, not for its failures, but for its successes, for how productive and rich we are. So here's the narrative that we hear. Look, in America, in a, uh, you know, capitalist or, or fairly capitalist country, the rich are getting richer. It's often on the backs of the poor. And what we need to do to remedy the situation, and the situation is bad, right? People can't get jobs. There's not, uh, it doesn't seem like we have the, the opportunity and prosperity that we once had. And what we need to do to remedy the situation is to increase taxes on the rich to pay for welfare programs and programs to sort of lift up the poor. I think everyone agrees now that equal- economic inequality is a is a big problem, but you say it's actually um, a good thing. Why do you say that? Well, I wouldn't put it as a good thing. I'd say it's an irrelevant thing because you can have inequality result from differences in production. You can have inequality result from differences in uh, government intervention, differences, things that arise by injustices. So inequality per se is neither good nor bad. It's irrelevant. And we, sh- we shouldn't be focused on economic inequality. But I do think uh, I want to come back to this idea that there's this narrative because I think it's really important for understanding what's going on today. So if you look at the polling, um, Americans have never cared about income inequality or economic inequality. But that started to change really over the last five years. And I think it is because we've heard a certain narrative. I'll expand upon it a little bit because I think it's it's important – to get what they're arguing and why it's working. So they, in effect, say, look, if we look back at the post-war era, say after World War II up till the mid-1970s, what we see is the government fighting inequality through things like high taxes on the rich, unions, high minimum wage laws, a growing welfare state. America becomes more equal. We become more prosperous. Then they say... We get to the late 1970s and especially the 1980s, and we veer off in this radically free market direction. And the result, they say, is predictable. The rich start rigging the system. The 1% see their incomes take off. The rest of us, so it's not just rich versus poor. It's all of us stagnate or worse. And so they say, look, that's the thing. If you want to live in a society that has opportunity, that has widespread prosperity, that sees everybody able to grow rich, then you should want the government to fight inequality. So in effect, what they're doing is they're saying to Americans who ha- who don't care about the fact, who aren't bothered by the fact that some people like Steve Jobs get really, really rich and saying, look, you should care because it's undermining the American dream. It's undermining the whole idea of a land of opportunity. And to date, nobody has really answered that narrative and more, and more deeply challenged the moral assumptions that underlie that narrative. And so long as that remains unchallenged, 
then I think, yes, they're going to keep being victorious. So what does it mean to challenge their whole approach? Well, they have a lot of opponents out there. I mean, certainly I think many conservatives and libertarians don't agree with the inequality alarmists uh, and their agenda. But if you look at how do they try to answer it? So one way will be to engage in kind of statistical squabbles. Like they'll say uh, inequality is not as bad as you make it out to be. Or um, actually, you know, the tax rates weren't really as high if you consider, you know, um, how many people they, the top rate fell on and so on. A lot of just arguing about the details. Some of it's important and a lot of those points are, are right. But the the next thing that you see is basically conceding that – Yes, we agree that we should be fighting for more economic equality, but we think that actually the left's program will make things worse, that free markets will lead to more equality. So what they never challenge and what they in effect concede is that economic equality is an ideal. And the minute you concede that, then the free markets lose out because the fact is they don't lead. They self-evidently don't lead to anything approaching economic equality. And that's for a very simple reason, right? That People produce very different amounts of wealth. And so what Yaron Brook and I argue in our essay is, well, given that, how do you challenge them? How do you turn the tables on these people? And we, and we say that this is a debate about uh, equality. And although we shouldn't care about income inequality, we should care about political equality. So tell me, what's the difference between those two? Uh, sure. So take a step back. Where, where did... I, uh, philosophers, thinkers start talking about equality in the modern sense. And it really starts to happen in the Enlightenment. And that's when what you have is a debate where we think about the political systems, the religious systems of the time. It's that you divide human beings into effect rulers and subjects, authorities and people whose job is to obey authorities. And you have the whole idea of the aristocracy, which has different courts and so on. And the the, the question then becomes... Well, why is it that some of these people have the right to rule and the rest of us are the ruled? What, what endows them with this special higher status? And the best thinkers at the time concluded that there's, there's nothing, that people are born equal. That is, we are all human beings and, there's, and, as, and as equals in that sense. Um, no one inherently has the right to rule anybody else. Nobody is properly a ruler or a subject. And this leads ultimately to the idea of the government's job, the government's role is to be representatives, representatives who represent the people that they're to govern and with one specific job to protect their rights. And so what political equality really amounts to is equality of rights. It's the idea that we're all human beings and therefore we have the same needs in order to survive and to live together in society, and that is to have our rights protected. So it's that the government treats men and women the same. It treats blacks and whites the same. Uh, it, it, all of them are going to be treated as equal before the law, as having the same rights. Nobody gets special privileges. Nobody gets special protections. And nobody gets special punishments, arbitrary barriers in the way of their pursuit of happiness. So let me give a, a more modern example that I think highlights the issue of political equality quite well and, and demonstrates why it is a supreme value. It is a very important value that we need to be staunchly uh, for and concerned with, and that's the whole civil rights movement. Here was people who were not being treated the same as the government because of the color of their skin. 
They said, look, you're putting special punishments on us, uh, Jim Crow laws, and you're not protecting our rights equally to others. So, for instance, if a white person murders a black person, in many cases, they're not going to be prosecuted or they'll be, you know, quote, prosecuted, but in a way that's rigged so that they can get away with this crime. And they said, no, we are equal and should be treated equally by the government. And I think that is what you, that is really zeroes in on why equality, political equality is so important. But then you have to think, what happens under political equality? Well, political equality is what unleashed the American dream. It's what made America America. It's precisely because nobody got special privileges and nobody got special punishments. Nobody got arbitrary barriers in their way to the extent that we actually um, uh, implemented the principle of political equality. Obviously, whether it was slavery, slavery or Jim Crow, we didn't do this consistently. But to the extent we did, that's what made America the land of opportunity, where you could rise as far as your ambition and ability took you. And so long as you did it yourself, you weren't going to be handed anything, but nobody could stop you from making the most of your life. So to get back then to how this connects to today's debate, the reason that, that inequality narrative resonates with people is because the problems it points to are true if somewhat exaggerated. There is uh, – in incomes are not growing as much as they once were. It is in many ways harder to succeed. It is particularly hard to rise from nothing today the way that people once did in America. But why? And what we argue is that actually the problem is not economic inequality. It is the fact that we have political inequality, that the government hasn't been protecting our equal rights. And so whether it's minimum wage laws, whether it's the welfare state, whether it's cronyism, all of these in one way or another represent a lack of a commitment to political equality that has made it harder for people to pursue the American dream. So I think one common objection to what you're saying, though, is it is hard to harder. It does seem harder to rise um, from nothing to to a success story in this country. And what makes it even harder is that if you're born into a certain situation. So if you're born to you know rich parents um, who who are loving and kind, you're going to have a much easier time in this country than if you're born um, you know poor and less desirable circumstances. And it seems like the the people who are fighting for um, equality in terms of economic equality are also pointing to to that kind of um, circumstance and that kind of a problem. Well, certainly it's true that if you were born with things that, that are uh, positives, that, that that makes your life better. It makes it easier to succeed. It gives you more options. That's one of the reasons that we fight so hard to give our kids opportunity because we know those things make a difference. If I give my kid a better education, he's going to have better options. But that but those but what's important to keep in mind is that those advantages, if you will, don't hold others back. The being surrounded by people who are well-educated and very rich doesn't make it harder for somebody who's poor to succeed. Indeed, it makes it easier for them to succeed. And we know this intuitively. Look, wh why don't Americans move in mass to countries like Mexico? They'd be among the wealthiest people there. They'd be among the best educated. It's because we you want to live in a land where other people are pursuing happiness, where they're achieving things, where there's a lot of wealth, where there's a lot of knowledge. It opens up possibilities. What 
the what makes it harder for a person to succeed what stops them from succeeding is arbitrary barriers placed in their way we all start wherever we start and our job is to make the most of it and what what's going on today what's stopping people is that the government is stopping many people from making the most of it let me just give two examples uh i i think are real travesties in terms of stopping people born at the bottom from rising the way they did all the time a hundred years ago one is the minimum wage so this basically says if you're born without knowledge or not born but if you don't have knowledge job experience and so on um then you don't get a job if you because the competitive advantage of a person who doesn't have skills or experience or a lot of knowledge is their ability to work cheap. And what the minimum wage does basically is prices a lot of those people out of the labor market and stops them from getting that first foothold on the ladder to success. And this is something we've talked about in depth on the podcast. And so I definitely encourage people because there, there's a lot of tricky arguments that go on with the minimum wage debate. The, the second one is the issue of education. Now, I don't think education should be a government function, but so long as they do it, they have a responsibility to do it. And I think a large number of American children, especially the poorest of American children, have been abysmally uneducated by the government. And that, in effect, cuts them off at the knees before they even get started. And so if you want to look at what is destroying opportunity for young people, it's not the fact that some people have a lot more opportunities because they're born to successful parents. It's that that they are being denied even the basics of opportunity by the government. So explain to me how it, how that plays out because both the minimum wage laws and uh, you know, free public education for all are meant to make sure that everybody has an equal equal opportunity, an equal playing field, and you're saying it actually leads to something that's that's in fact really bad. So how does it, or why does it play out that way? Well, I mean, the, the, the question in effect is why do the results not match the intentions? And I think there's two answers to that. One is that intentions are not enough to make something work. You have to actually look at what makes it, uh, what makes it work. What makes an industry productive and effective so education, I mean, it's an industry. It's a, you're, they're providing a service. Well, if you nationalize an industry, protect it from competition, and make it impossible for people, virtually impossible for people to look for alternatives, then do you, there's no reason why you would expect it to be any good. There's no reason why you would expect an industry to succeed if it basically has a government monopoly. And that's why many countries have eliminated over the last 30 years government monopolies in a lot of other areas, uh, you know, just to take the most obvious sorts of cases, um, you know, whenever they would uh, privatize one of the, you know, nationalized industries in England or so on, it was because it, it socialism doesn't work in effect. But we've socialized the schools. We've socialized them for well over 100 years. Um, with the minimum wage, of course, it's your intention is for higher pay, Higher pay in a free market is a result of higher productivity and saying that people have to be paid more when they are not being productive enough to warrant it. It doesn't matter what your attention is. 
you can't force people to hire the, the, those who are not productive enough to warrant that amount of money. So there's in this sense a mismatch between intentions and the facts of reality. But I think the more disturbing part of it is, is I don't think that in many cases the intention is to lift people's wages or to make sure people are more educated. Um, I think if you're looking at, at the egalitarians, that's not their concern. Their concern is to basically take away people's freedom to put us under control of the government because they're authoritarians and they want to be the authorities who tell people how to live. And it's a lot easier to tell people how to live if you control the ideas and values that they're taught and then if you control the prices that are charged on a market. And so their goal, if you look at the goal as power and then everything else is a rationalization, then it's no surprise that these things don't work and yet they continually push for them more and more and more. So I want to go back to something you said before about Cuba having more income or more equal incomes than, say, the United States. And in your your paper, you quote someone who says that Uruguay, Nicaragua, Guyana, and Venezuela have more um, you know, equality of, of economics or incomes. I've heard the same thing about certain Scandinavian countries. Uh, so is that the ideal that they want us to, uh, to go towards? Uh, well... Yes and no. They'll certainly point to you know these countries that are more equal. That they prefer Scandinavia certainly over the other ones because it. But it's revealing the fact that the that many of these poorer nations um, are more equal than the United States. What it illustrates is that there's no connection. Um, there's no causal connection between the amount of equality or the amount of inequality and the amount of prosperity, and the uh, and so but it's not that's not really their ideal because the egalitarians are going to once you have something like a scandinavia are going to push for even more and more and more they're not going to say okay we've got everything equal enough and now let's go ahead and keep creating wealth and the more consistent egalitarians in effect admit this that is they are explicitly against economic growth um they want to level down openly and in fact uh to take just one example naomi klein who wrote a popular book recently who's written popular books on inequality and one recently in environmentalism has said explicitly and this is a book widely praised by the left including in the new york times and so on we need to stop our fetish with economic growth and level down and what kind of what's a country that they do idealize setting aside scandinavia well they'll often point to cuba this is an example that we can stop this you know, concern with economic progress and we can focus on creating a more egalitarian society. And don't, don't worry, we can all live like under Castro and yay for that. But again, it reveals that what they're really after. It's not lifting everybody up. It's leveling the top down. So in your paper, you talk about a couple of uh, myths or fallacies that are often thrown around when we're talking about this idea of inequality. And so I'll read a quote that you have in the paper from President Obama. And he says, quote, the top 10% no longer takes in one third of our income. It now takes half, unquote. So what does Obama, I mean, he's, this is clearly a cut on, on rich people. And he's saying that they're, they're taking more than their fair share. Um, what is, what, uh, what's revealing about what he says? So the wider point here is that 
there, the inequality alarmists have a certain way of speaking about wealth and production that basically assumes that economic inequality is inherently unfair. That is, that it's an, an it, that when you see inequality by that very fact, you know that something bad must have happened to someone. And this particular fallacy is the fallacy of, in effect, what, what I call the collective pie fallacy or the tribal pie fallacy. Notice he refers to our income, and it's taken. So these are kind of metaphorical terms that ignore the fact that what we really see is not people taking more of our income, which by logic would lead leave the rest of us with less. What we really see if we look around an economy to the extent it's free is we see that people produce different amounts of income. Different individuals produce different amounts of income. So for instance, the analogy I like to give is imagine, you know, you and me were on a desert island and, you know, I grow, I don't know, 50 carrots. I don't know what you'd grow in an island, um, but you grow 30. And you, you say, look how much of the island's income you're taking for yourself. And this is to say, Amanda, no, I grew more carrots. I mean, it was my work and that's the result of my effort. And it can sometimes be complex to see the connection between an individual's effort and the financial results they get in a division of labor economy with millions of people. But the principle is the same, that there's no taking of some collective pie. There's people baking their own individual pies, albeit working together in groups. And so you you can't assume that because inequality is increasing, that that means there's been any taking or that anybody else is any worse off. Because the the fact is that what you actually see is a, in a growing free economy is widespread inequality with everybody getting richer precisely because um, not only is wealth not a group pie game, um, but it's also not – this is another fallacy I talk about, a fixed pie. So they'll often talk about a um, – the, the economy is if one person's gain has to be another uh, another person's loss. And, uh, I mean, they literally will use an analogy to say, think about it like a pie. The more the one guy gets, the less for, less for everybody else. But it's not a fixed pie, and clearly it's not a fixed pie. We're infinitely more wealthy than we were 100 years ago. And so you can have rising inequality with every person being better off. So one of the points that you make in, in the paper is that when on this quest for equality, what it really amounts to is that the government ends up picking winners and losers. Can you expand on that? Sure. So the what happens in a free market, right? It leads to differences in economic differences. Um, some people produce a lot. Some people produce a little. Some people produce a ton. And some people don't produce anything. The only way then that you can get equality is how? Well, it's through force. It's through the government intervening and saying, no, you're not going to be rewarded to relative to what you produced. You're going to be rewarded or not relative to what we say. So it, it concretizes for a minute. I know of um, two brothers and one of them, you know, has always worked really, really hard He's uh, diligent. You know, he, he wasn't like your typical nerdy student, but he took his work seriously. And then once he graduated from college, which, by the way, he had to work his way th through uh, through his own effort. His parents didn't have the money to send him. Um, 
got a you know great job and and basically didn't do anything except for work for years and now is not rich but very successful and his brother is also a smart guy but never really you know um found a career he's passionate didn't kill himself to do well in school dropped out of college and basically took a, a fast food job uh in management and now is you know the money that he did have he went into debt uh using credit cards those are two different places that some people ended up clearly their own choices were really critical in these because both were smart both were from the same family but they got very different results from their own free choices so how can you make things equal well it's only by using physical forces by the government deciding no we're going to say who the winners and losers are and how would you make them more equal well what you have to do is take the people who won through their own choices and turn them into losers put barriers in their way take the results of their achievements whatever the case may be and then take the losers then and reward them for because they were losers uh and that is you know we're going to take the money from that guy over there, the brother who's really successful, and we're going to give it to the unsuccessful one. And so the when whenever you hear about the idea of the government's going to pursue an agenda of making people more equal, it is that sort of we're going to pick winners and losers, and particularly what we're going to do is we're going to invert the winners and losers. So it's if you failed for whatever reason, whether it's your own choices or just bad luck, you're going to basically be entitled to special privileges. If you won and succeeded, even by your own effort and your and your own achievements, you're going to be subject to special punishments. You're in effect, you're in the loser category. So the inequality alarmists will often suggest and point to things like cronyism, like you, you gov- business insiders getting special favors from the government and saying, oh, we don't like that. But what they object to is not special privileges uh, or or arbitrary punishments. They just want to mix around who gets the punishments and who gets the rewards. And so I said, that's why I say they're, they're actually opponents of uh, political equality. They, if you were for political equality, you would look at something like cronyism and say, stop the cronyism, no special favors. Everybody competes on a level playing field, but that is not their view. Their view is yes, we do believe that there should be special favors, but they shouldn't go to the rich. They should go to the 99%. And ultimately what they, what they really stand for is that the more you achieve, the more value create, the better person you are, then the more you should be punished. And the worse you are, the less you achieve, the more despicable person you are, um, the more you're entitled to rewards and protections from the government. So, I mean, I think people would agree that if you look at case by case and you look at two brothers and the one took advantage of, of opportunities and, and the other one didn't, uh, you might find it unjust that uh, one was given unearned rewards and the other was, was cut down um, because he was successful. But I think when people talk about inequality, they're usually calling to mind people that uh, you know really did draw a short straw in life. They're born into terrible circumstances, uh, maybe through, like you said, bad luck or no fault of their own. And I know that that's the kind of things that come to people's minds. How do you, um, how do you answer those types of objections? Well, it, it, it has to be clear. We have to be clear about, well, what is exactly the objection? Is it true that some people suffer through no fault of their own? Certainly, but it's not an inequality problem. 
and it, it is in um it's not a problem because some people succeed that's what it would have to be for an inequality problem but no it's bad when good people face bad uh circumstances through no fault of their own but this actually points to the basic method of trying to get people to care about inequality and it really there's a certain formula that the inequality alarmists invoke whenever they're trying to present economic inequality as a pressing issue. So the first is they'll point to some genuine hardship or injustice. It's look at this person. They were born into poverty with, you know, alcoholic parents in a you know, horrible part of town with schools that didn't educate them. You know, hardship and justice, no question about it. Then they will compare or contrast that with other people's success. It completely unrelated, but it's but look over here. There's a bunch of people who went to grade schools and whose parents, you know, uh, were loving, took care of them, gave them lots of money, gave them you know a head start in life, gave them opportunities. And then point three is they'll say, and this is all subtle. They they won't number it out for you. <laughs> um, the problem is the gap. It's that gap. It's not the hardship. It's not the injustice. It's the gap between the people at the top, the people at the bottom. And then four, they say, well, how do we fight the gap? Well, clearly, we have to prop up the people at the bottom and chop down the people at the top. That is completely illegitimate. I mean, it's in effect like saying the problem with kids drowning is the fact that there's other people in the world who can swim. No, it's that there's the drowning. And so... Then let's so we can set that aside. That is not relevant to the inequality debate. None of that is relevant to the inequality debate. The question is how does a social system deal with hardships and injustices? And in the end, the there's two parts to that answer, which is I don't think it's the government's role to fight hardships to in effect say you're poor, so you're going to get extra money because to do that you have to do what. You have to commit an injustice. You have to punish somebody, take away something from somebody that he earned honestly in order to give it to that other person. Um, the, the government's role is to protect people's freedom, get rid of the injustices. So if there are injustices, you fight them. And then if a given individual using his money wants to help somebody, there's no injustice involved in that. And certainly people are free to do it and historically have done it. So the the way to kind of summarize all this is, Yes, those are real issues. They're not issues of inequality. And in my view, in the end, the solution is what's the best way to help people rise above hardships and the way to minimize injustices is have a free system. A free system says you cannot commit an injustice that consists of violating somebody else's rights and you can thereby prosper. And if you want to, you can help those who face troubles. So let's go through one one more example before we, we kind of wrap up. I'm curious about the issue of CEO pay. So people will say, you know, what's wrong with a, a world in which a CEO makes hundreds of times the salary of the people uh, in his company actually doing the work? So what it seems like the, the objection is just the, sim- the simple fact that somebody makes a lot more money than, than somebody else. So how would you answer that kind of a uh, an issue? Well, I mean, this goes back to the point I uh, made before about the, the, the issue of fairness. So the the 
inequality alarmists at the end of the day view gaps, certainly any significant gap, is inherently unfair. And it's an interesting question to ask them. Well, what is the what is the you know ratio, acceptable ratio between a dishwasher and Steve Jobs? Uh, and you're not going to get an answer for that. But setting that aside, the the question you have to ask them and ask yourself is what's our measure of fairness? What is it, What does fairness mean in a context of economic rewards? If it means economic equality, okay, well, that is a debate worth having. Um, but for most people don't mean, don't have in mind that when they talk about fairness, what they want to know is did a person earn it? Did he honestly earn his income? And when it comes to CEOs, the fact is that a productive CEO, somebody who's actually doing uh, the job of running a big company, it's an enormously productive position that companies live or die on the basis of their CEOs. We can see just to take the obvious example, Apple before and after Steve Jobs returned. This is a company that was on the brink of bankruptcy and that went to the most valuable company on earth. That's what a CEO can bring to a company, and that's why they can be worth millions, tens of millions, even billions of dollars if they're really, really good at what they do. Now, the particular argument with CEO pay, though, is today, or one aspect of the argument today, is there's a lot of tricky arguments that try to say that, well, pay doesn't really reflect what CEOs earn. Um, we don't need to go into that now, except to say that Yaron and I have a whole section in our forthcoming book, Equal is Unfair, where we tackle every one of those objections. I want to make a bigger picture point. How is it that incomes are determined on a free market? What determines how much money you make? Um, and what determines how much money you make is the voluntary judgment of other people who deal with you about the value of what you produce. So it's your employer's judgment about how much you're worth. It's the judgment of people about how much a product is worth. It is the voluntary consent of other people. And, and I think that by that standard, that is what we mean when we, and what we should mean when we say somebody earned it fair and square. It's that he got it through his productive effort and dealing with others through voluntary trade. And that's what what makes the incomes on a free market deserved, earned, and proper. It's that nobody arbitrarily came along and dictated that, oh, you're worth $50,000 a year and you're worth $50 million. It was made by people acting with their under their own consent with their own money and so to, connected to CEOs. Who's determining what a CEO gets paid? It's shareholders through their boards of directors acting with their own money. And if they disagree... It doesn't have to come out of their pockets because they can just sell their stock, and there's a number of things that they can do. Um, but it's not taken away from anybody. That the 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 insignia of deserved rewards is that they're win-win. It's that they come from somebody creating something and others dealing with them because they're better off as a result. It's yeah, we want to pay uh, Bill Gates a gazillion dollars to run our company because he's you know he's doing a really great job. The insignia of undeserved rewards is that they're win-lose. And the only time in a free market you get win-lose over any significant period of time is um, through or is when you don't have a free market. It's when the government intervenes and makes it possible to extract unearned rewards through physical force. And 
I think today there's a mixture of that that goes on. There are there are rewards that people have that are not deserved. Whether and to take just the obvious example, it's going to be say a company like Solyndro, where you know it was getting a bunch of uh, subsidies from the government for green energy. I don't think a CEO who's basically living off the government earned his rewards. But again, that's because he was able to subvert a free market and get handouts from the government. And so if you have a government that protects people's rights, where you have political equality, there's no way to get undeserved rewards over any span of time without resorting to crime. And again, that's something the government exists to punish. So you say that while people think that income inequality or economic inequality is a threat to to the American dream, um, that they're missing the real threat. What's the real threat? Well, the real threat is, as I've tried to highlight, the real threat is a threat to political equality. And it is the view that government should have the power and should exercise the power to treat people differently, to arbitrarily restrict what some people can do in their productive endeavors, to arbitrarily take away some people's money, and to arbitrarily reward other people with special favors, special benefits, special handouts. And that is really, we've headed more and more in that direction. And what's disturbing about the inequality alarmists is that the scale on which they want to move us away from political equality is unprecedented. That is, just take somebody like Bernie Sanders, who, you know, basically wants to increase government spending by $18 trillion dollars create a new giveaway program for everything, regulate every producer into the ground. Um, the, the, if you want the American dream, you don't need to go and you shouldn't start trying to look more like Europe. You should start trying to look more like America, what America was when that dream arose. And that was a society that was starting to approach the ideal of government treats us all the same. No barriers to anyone's pursuit of happiness, no special privileges for people to allegedly pursue their happiness. And to the extent that we keep abandoning that ideal, then yes, it's going to go from an American dream into a nightmare. The essay is called Turning the Tables on the Inequality Alarmist by Don Watkins and Yaron Brook. Uh, Don, where can we get a, where can people get a hold of the essay? So it's online for free. They can go to equalisunfair.com, and uh, they'll also be able to find information about our forthcoming book. It doesn't come out till next March, so you have a while, um, but we'll certainly be adding more resources as we go along. I think it's really critical to reframe this debate from the ground up, and I think the objectivist perspective here is really critical because – a, this is a philosophic issue. Our opponents are egalitarians. They're motivated by an egalitarian ideology. And so you need to be able to attack it on a philosophic and a moral level. Um, and the, the second aspect of reframing the debate is they have this very powerful narrative. And the only way to answer it is to be able to see that the many of the things they're pointing to are real, but the causes are... Um, the abandonment of an individualist ideology that the egalitarians oppose. So I think these are 
both the ability to defend individualism and, and smash egalitarianism, I think, are very unique contributions of Ayn Rand, and I think they are absolutely necessary today. Because I do regard this is this the inequality campaign is not one narrow issue; it's a whole moral and intellectual framework for understanding the world. And to the extent that that framework gets accepted and gets embedded here, then it basically is going to destroy the last vestiges of economic freedom the way that it that it really has in Europe, because freedom depends on. A country that admires success, that sees the individ- sees individual achievement as something positive, something to be admired, and something to be rewarded. And part of what's made America unique, um, uh, Elon Musk, the entrepreneur, um, he made a comment. He's not the only one to make this observation recently where he said, the American attitude towards success is unique, celebratory. We see it as positive. We have a good view of innovators and entrepreneurs. Whereas in Europe, he says that is not the view at all. And he brings in the analogy, um, a phrase that I think comes from Australia, chopping down the tall poppies, that if you become too good or too successful, you should be cut down to size. And he says that that is not the American way, but it is around much of the rest of the world. And to the extent a culture has that, it's poison to freedom, it's poison to prosperity. And so we, we the question is, what, are, what is the philosophy that makes a positive attitude towards success possible? And that is what really I think Ayn Rand provides. And then she exposes the philosophy that poisons a culture. Um, and egalitarianism is, I think, the worst and most prevalent version of that philosophy. And uh, it has to be countered. And I think this essay, uh, you should check it out because it does a really good job of um, framing both how the inequality alarmists, uh, you know, what their arguments rely on, what are the consequences, and what, as Don said, what's a, a better way um, so that you know, hopefully we can keep the American dream going. All right. Thank you, Don. Thank you, Amanda. So obviously no wrap-up today, and it is time to bring this podcast to a close. As I mentioned in the interview, you can find the essay we talked about at equalsunfair.com. And if you enjoyed the debt dialogues, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft. And let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.